We're going to be continuing this walk through uh, John 15 through 17, which I don't know about you guys, but I have found this to be uh, a very encouraging series. I love, I'm, I'm a big fan of the red letters, right? I love, I love Jesus' words, what he says, what he commands, what he encourages uh, in, in just uh, a couple sermons we get to what he is praying for us, which is just so extraordinary that we get to eavesdrop on his prayers for us, on behalf of us. And so I, I hope you guys have been as encouraged by the series as I have. So this week, we're going to be uh, in uh, chapter 16. Um, Jay, uh, two weeks ago, last week was kind of the state of the church sermon. So two weeks ago when we were here, he took us a little, bit, a few verses into chapter 16. And so here we'll be starting uh, in kind of halfway through verse 4 here, where Jesus continues. He says, I did not say these things to you from the very beginning, the things about you will be hated by the world and I am going, but don't worry because I have overcome the world. He says, I, I didn't say these things to you from the very beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus always tells us the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I'm going to pause here just for a second because maybe you hear that and like me, your first response is, it's to our advantage that he goes? How is that an advantage? Why is that good news that Jesus is leaving? How can it possibly be better for us if Jesus is leaving? And he explains to the apostles and to us that it's good news because if he goes, then we get the Holy Spirit in exchange. But is this a safe place for us to be honest with one another? I hope so. Many of us hear that and we think, I don't know if that's a good trade. How is that better? Trading the physical, tangible presence of Jesus with us for this kind of nebulous, mysterious presence of the Spirit that kind of doesn't necessarily feel like an upgrade, right? In fact, to some of us, it almost feels like you're trading something for nothing. Right? And maybe we're not allowed to say that out loud, but for a lot of us, that's the practical thing that we are feeling, where it's like, man, I'd just be, if only Jesus were just right here, right in front of me, and I could just touch him and talk to him, that would be so much better. But Jesus, who always tells us the truth, says, no, 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 it is, it is better that I go so that you may instead have the Holy Spirit. And one very practical reason why that is true is that the incarnate Jesus, the Jesus who is saying this right now, is localized. He is versus the Spirit who is omnipresent. And so Jesus being on earth does not necessarily mean that he's sitting at your kitchen table helping you out of a jam. Because if Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, is in Galilee, 
That means he is not in Jerusalem or Peshtigo. However, the Spirit of the living God is everywhere, always. Everywhere, every when, always. He is, I love the way the psalmist puts it. He's almost, uh, almost frustrated. He's like, where can I go from your spirit? How could I possibly escape your spirit? Right? I, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I descend, if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there too. If I take on the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall guide me and your right hand shall hold me. There is no place that I can go where the Spirit is not. That is better. That is better. So actually the reality is we have it backwards. Jesus staying would mean that we could not all have his tangible presence. It is only in the Spirit that we do all have access to him all of the time, no matter where or when we are. As Ray Ortland puts it, Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers that he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Because he did not dwell within them, but he does us, church. What if it doesn't feel like that, Robbie? If I can't feel his presence in the same way and interact with him in the same way that I can a person who's standing in front of me? That's a, that's a real question. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. And I think it's important for us to establish, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? Because Jesus lays out, I'm sending him to you, and this is what he is going to do. So in verse 8, it says, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay? Concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. There's a lot in there. This is a meaty few verses here. So we'll start, we'll just walk through. He says he will convict, or what, we, what it means is pass fair judgment, right? Determine the state of the world. And, and what he means by that is everybody, everybody, both the secular and the religious, everyone is under this judgment concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. And you go, well, what do those mean? And Jesus says, let me answer for you, right? And then he just walks through. Here's what I mean by each of these things. Concerning sin, because they do not, what? Believe in me, right? Not concerning sin, because they do this. 
or that. Not concerning sin because they don't do this or that. It is concerning sin and he is defining that as the heart issue that is the core of all sin. Theirs, yours, and mine. Which is fundamentally a disbelief in Jesus as the absolute authority of every desire and every decision of your life. And that he alone is able to save you from yourself who happens to be your worst enemy. That is the issue that he is dealing with. The Spirit is saying, I am... I am convicting the world. I am, I am passing correct, fair judgment on the world for not believing that I deserve, that, that Jesus deserves authority over all things. Every desire of your heart, every dream, every decision, every choice. And he goes on because concerning righteousness. And this one is kind of the confusing one, right? Because he doesn't seem like he's actually answering the question. It seems like he's adding more questions to it, right? Because he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. What? What does, that, what does that have to do with righteousness? Well, I think the author of Hebrews understood what he meant by that when, when they wrote, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for a single time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the, the end-all statement that Jesus' work of accomplishing righteousness for all of us was complete is that he goes to the Father. That means my work is done. The task is complete. It is accomplished. It is finished, he says. Which, fun fact, is the same word that we translate here, perfected. So Jesus going to the Father is what signifies the work of righteousness has been accomplished. And here's why this matters to us, right? Because you hear that and you go, that sounds like a little egghead theological there. I don't really understand why that matters to me. Here's why it matters to you. Here's why it matters to me. The thing about New Testament righteousness, right standing before God, is that you cannot be more or less. It is binary. You are righteous or you are unrighteous. There is no sliding scale. When you look at another believer and you judge yourself to be more or less righteous than them, that is, by definition, self-righteousness or works-righteousness. Because you are basing your right standing before God on your behavior, right? Or your doctrinal position or your principle in this particular matter. And compared to that other person, mine is better, therefore my standing is a little bit better than theirs. Or, I am clearly not as good as that person. Look at the amazing things they do. Listen to how they pray. Look at how they serve. Look at how they give. Look how patient they are in this thing. I'm clearly not as good as they are. I am not as righteous as they are. 
Paul says that that attitude is literally to reject Christ himself. He says in Galatians, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If my behavior has the ability to make me more or less righteous, then Jesus' crucifixion was a pointless waste of time. He is a fool. I don't think Jesus is a fool. My actions sometimes betray that. And maybe you hear that and you think, Robbie, ah, but people do that in the church all the time. Like we're always kind of talking about I'm better than this person or worse than that person. I wish I could be more like that person. These people are obviously the worst because they're outside of God's will. Like we compare ourselves to one another constantly. I know, that's the problem. Self-righteousness is arguably one of the easiest ditches to fall into. We dive into it head first. Sometimes, and, the, and the, the nefarious thing about it is it's one of those sins that you actually think you are more like Jesus when you are doing this particular horrific sin. That's how deceptive it is. And, and the thing that's crazy about it is it covers both extremes, right? Because the person who is convinced that they are better than others because of their behavior or their doctrinal beliefs and the person who is burdened under the oppressive weight of never feeling good enough to please God, are both standing right next to each other in the exact same ditch, believing that it is their behavior and rule following that makes the difference in their standing with God. Paul says, For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God. Right? They're, they're sincere in their zeal for God. But being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end. The old law or whatever new laws we keep creating and coming up with are done. The end. They were crucified with Christ just like I was and just like you were if you were in him. Jesus has passed sentence on the false righteousness that is based on your and my right behavior or holding to right principles. All that remains is to cling to Jesus alone, who gives me and you his righteousness, in which case we have it all, or he doesn't, in which case I have none. Those are the only two options, all of it or none of it. Which means, bottom line is, Paul, you, me, that woman who doesn't hold to precisely the exact same doctrinal understandings that you do, and that guy who keeps using profanity in his prayers because he's been saved for like 20 minutes and he doesn't know any better, are all the exact same level of righteousness as one another. Because... It's all of Christ's righteousness or none. Part of the Holy Spirit's job, Jesus is telling us, is constantly reminding us that if you are in Christ, by no credit of your own, your righteousness has been accomplished. The account is full. Now, sanctification 
is a whole other conversation, right? Or growing in Christ-likeness. That certainly happens in degrees, but that's a whole other sermon for a different time, right? That has to do with fruitfulness, with abundant life, with joy, both yours and God's, but has nothing to do with your standing before God. Any more than any act that my son or daughter can do can make them more my son or daughter or make me love them any more or any act of rebellion or evil or selfishness or failure would make me love them even one degree less or somehow make them somehow less my son or my daughter. They have been adopted. They are secure. Their standing is permanently sealed. I will never stop telling my daughter that. I get the epic eye roll every time I walk through this routine with her because she's so sick of hearing it from me. And I hope she is not sick of it but delighted by it when my last breaths are reminding her, reminding my son of who they are regardless of their behavior. And our Holy Spirit is doing the same thing constantly, daily, moment to moment, never stopping, reminding us that if you are in Christ, it is finished. It is accomplished. You are adopted. You are His. It is done. Robbie, how did you manage to get on the adoption rabbit trail again? Because you've received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit that he gives us is the spirit that seals our adoption It's the final signature on the papers that say, it is done. You are family forever. To those of you who are struggling under the crushing burden of mistakes and failures and habitual sin, you should find this as exceedingly good news. Our trouble is that we don't hear the Spirit telling us this, or when we do, we just don't believe Him. That can't be true. The reality is we, because of the Spirit, can pursue Jesus with full abandon, knowing that when you belong to Him, our every stumble does not move us one millimeter away from Him. And rather than motivating complacency or apathy or laziness, the Spirit uses that truth to stir in us a desire to abandon both sides of self-righteousness, right? Whether feeling that I'm in any way better than someone else or the discouragement and defeat from knowing that I am not better than anybody. And, And as Paul says, instead make every effort to reach out and take hold of that for which Christ has already taken hold of me. That is what the Spirit stirs in us when He reminds us of who we are in that. But He goes on. There's more. He says He will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. 
There, There is a ruler of this world, and he is over every earthly kingdom, every one. There is no kingdom or country or culture that is exempt from his rule over them. In Matthew, when Jesus is being tempted, Satan takes him and says he, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Right? And if you're thinking like, well, that's, you know, how high could this mountain be if you can see everyone because the world's a sphere. Okay, it's not, it's spiritual, right? This is a spiritual thing that is going on. And, and, and these spiritual beings are interacting in this way, and he's showing him all of creation and all of man's kingdoms, everything that we build. And Satan looks at Jesus and says, I will give you all of it if you bow down and worship me. And what's Jesus' response? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Do you notice what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, don't be silly, Satan. Those aren't yours to give. He acknowledges, I know those belong to you, but I'm not interested. I choose the triune God over all of the kingdoms of the earth. You keep your kingdoms, Satan, and I'll keep mine. This is why we pray your kingdom come. Because the ruler of all of the kingdoms of the earth and the kingdoms themselves have all been weighed and been found wanting and have been justly condemned. So we pray, your kingdom come. Because as the author of Hebrews says, here we have no lasting city. But we seek a city that is to come. Spirit will remind us, and we'll have to over and over and over again, that we belong to a different kingdom entirely. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, as it says in the Gospels over and over again. And we live in this kingdom as exiles, as foreigners, as sojourners, with our true citizenship in the very real kingdom of the triune God. As Paul says in Philippians, living not with mindset on earthly sin, uh, on earthly things, because our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is another part of the truth that He will continue to guide us in if we are willing to listen. The other thing it says that He will do is He will glorify Jesus in everything. Right? He is constantly pointing us back to Jesus. So this is actually one of the ways that we can discern when it is the Spirit's voice that is speaking to us and leading us and when it's just your own inner monologue. Because right? it's really important to differentiate between those two. Some things sound like a really good idea until I realize it was my idea. And it sounds a lot less exciting. Is that voice reminding you that Jesus is ultimate in all things? Is that prompting that you are feeling affirming that Jesus is who we seek to glorify and not ourselves or anything or anyone else? Is it reminding you that Jesus is king, nobody else? 
Is that spiritual confirmation that you believe you are receiving to make that decision affirming that following Jesus costs everything and that's still a bargain? Is that voice reminding you that the way to accomplish whatever it is that you are pursuing is through love? Earlier in this same conversation, in chapter 14, Jesus tells the apostles, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Right? So he's previewing again here the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The Spirit always speaks the truth. Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And he goes on, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Spirit reminds us constantly of what Jesus has said, what he did, how he loved, what he desired, and what he commanded us. Not just what truth to obey, but how to obey it and to demonstrate it with beauty, with compassion, with kindness, and with unifying grace, just like our Jesus did. When we are willing to actually listen to the Spirit of God, He does and will correct our skewed perspectives and our self-exalting interpretations of His Word as well as our despair and our discouragement and our defeat, both by pointing us back to Jesus. When we say things like, sin isn't really that big a deal, at least my sin isn't that big a deal, not compared to that guy's sin, the Holy Spirit will remind you of the incarnation of Jesus and the cross. And what Jesus willingly endured in order to deal with sin and adopt you. If, on the other hand, you say, I can never be good enough. I can never be so good that you would be pleased with me. The Holy Spirit will remind you of the incarnation and the cross. And what Jesus willingly endured in order to deal with sin and adopt you. Did you catch that? The two extremes have the same answer. When we say things like, loving your neighbor is good, or Christian unity is good, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will remind you, Jesus commanded you to love your neighbor. Actually, refer to it as the greatest commandment. Also, to love your enemies. And commanded us to be unified as a church. We're going to get to that in just a couple Sundays. So when we say that, what we are literally saying is, obeying Jesus is good, but... And the reality is, there's no way to finish that sentence that doesn't put you in direct opposition to Jesus Christ which is a problem. The Spirit will remind you that what Jesus said is, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. And my commandment is this, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what the spirit of truth will remind us of. When we think, but then loving people means I must affirm them continuing in self-destructive sin, right? Nonsense. The Holy Spirit will remind us of the woman caught in adultery whom Jesus told, go and sin no more. It's killing you and hurting others. And when we think, right, Robbie, exactly. That's why I need to tell everybody how wrong they are, just like Jesus. The Holy Spirit will remind you of the woman caught in adultery, whom Jesus protected from her accusers, and whom Jesus told, I do not condemn you, before she even repented or, or even expressed a desire to change her behavior. That is what the Holy Spirit is continually reminding us of if we are willing to listen to his voice rather than our own and all the voices around us that are screaming things contrary to what our Jesus has said and done. Maybe you hear that and you go, I I don't hear him saying anything. I get that. I can say with assurance it is not because he is not doing what he promised. It is often because we just don't know how to listen anymore. Matthew, in the parable of the sower, Jesus says the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Seed is not bad. But the unchecked weeds just choke it out. We can, we can ignore the voice of the Spirit for so long that it just becomes white noise in the background. I just tune it out. I don't even hear it anymore. Even though He is continually speaking. We become so cluttered with the cares of this world, the hoarding lesser desires and trivial controversies that we can't even see the Spirit anymore underneath the pile. Sometimes that clutter is actually the activity of churchy stuff. Right? Church activity that keeps me busy and feeling good about myself. Or we get in this rotation of podcasts, sermons, book studies, podcasts, sermons, book studies. You know what's not in that rhythm? Listening to the Holy Spirit. I'm listening to every voice but His. Not that those things are bad. Those things can help bring clarity and and, and help alleviate confusion to the voice of the Spirit. But if those are the only voices I'm ever listening to and I'm not listening to the Spirit of the living God speaking directly to me, that is a net loss. The other clouding factor is sin. Straight up, we can't, we can't deny the reality that the sin in our life will deafen us to the voice of the Holy Spirit and what He is communicating to us. In Ephesians, Paul says it like this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such 
as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I've seen precious little of that in 2020 in particular, but in general. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That word, that word grieve means make excessively sad. We're not going out on a linguistic limb here. If we were to translate that, do not break the heart of the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Rather, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Church, when we think and speak divisive ideas, rather than that which builds up, when we are angry and when we wish ill against others, both inside and outside of the church, rather than being kind and tender-hearted and forgiving one another, just like Jesus, we break the heart of the Holy Spirit of the living God and grow more and more deaf to Him. My motivation to flee from sin is not so that God will think better of me or so that my standing with Him will improve, but because I love Him. That should be your motivation because you love him because he loves you. And, and we want to be fruitful. And we want to recognize his voice as distinct from all other voices. Often the Spirit is speaking directly to us and we hear him loud and clear. We just respond with, that's ridiculous. Obviously, I'm not going to do that. Obviously, I can't forgive that person. Clearly, I cannot give that much. I am definitely not going to confess that sin to others so that I can be freed from it. That would be embarrassing and humiliating. I'm not going to do that. I'm certainly not going to share that gospel with that person so that they may be saved by it. I don't even like them. I kind of prefer them not knowing the gospel. Or just, I'm afraid to. What if I do it wrong? What if I ruin it by my bad communication of it? I'm not prepared to be able to do that. right? Because some of us are just too afraid to obey. That seems scary. Either you fear you won't be good enough or that it will cost you too much or that, or that you'll do it wrong or that you aren't equipped enough to do that thing. And really what is happening to us is just that Jesus is calling us out of the boat and we are only willing to put one foot in the water. And then wonder why that doesn't feel super miraculous. Peter experienced the miraculous presence and power of God because as complete, total mess as Peter was, he was willing to jump in with both feet. Think about this, church. I'm closing with this. The worshiping team can come and come on up and get ready, but I want you to think about this. 
The spirit of the triune God of the universe, immortal, invisible, God only wise, like the hymn says, dwells within those of us who belong to him, speaking to us directly, leading us to Jesus, reminding us that we are loved by the Father, empowering us to love others like Jesus loves us, reminding us that truth is defined by and embodied by Jesus, empowering us to obey Jesus, and then when we don't, reminding us that our sin and our failures and our weakness has all already been carried on our behalf by our Jesus. That is what the Spirit is constantly doing in us and for us, igniting our hearts to sense the truth and beauty of the gospel in the first place and then sealing us as his own and then also filling us with him in order to grow in our surrender to and delight in Jesus as well as our obedience to him. And we haven't even touched on how he miraculously empowers the church to do the works of God for his glory and his kingdom. We haven't even gotten into that stuff yet. Because Jesus didn't here. He's, he's saving that one. He's like, guys, just wait. You, I'm telling you this part now, but oh man, it's about to hit. So he didn't share it here, so we must wait as well. So for now, let's dwell on all that the Spirit is doing in us in drawing us constantly, daily, moment to moment, back to our Jesus, even though the gravity of our hearts is pulling us away, the Spirit sealed us, holds us, and says, no, 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 Jesus, come back to Jesus. Remember who he is. Remember what he has done. Remember who you are because of him. Spirit, please do not for one moment stop declaring that to the deepest recesses of our hearts and souls. God, clear our clouded and cluttered heads. Clear our cluttered hearts to be able to see you, to be able to feel your tangible presence in us and with us as the same spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead dwelling in us. Please, Spirit, let us to hear your voice clearly distinctly to be able to discern it as the spirit, the voice of truth is distinct from all other voices. We thank you, Jesus, that we can even pray this because of you. Amen.